welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series three and episode number two. And in this episode, Jesus heals a government official's son. We're back in John's Gospel for this episode. We're going to be reading shortly from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. In the last episode, I was reading from Matthew, Mark and Luke, describing a particular account of a key event. And that was Jesus starting his public preaching in Galilee. We'd spent quite a long time in previous episodes finding out what had happened between Jesus's baptism in the River Jordan and his public preaching in Galilee. And it turned out that a lot of things happened in that intervening period. Many of them recorded by John's Gospel and many of them related to Jesus visiting the south of the country, Judea and Jerusalem. We saw the first cleansing of the temple, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, the amazing encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan villagers as he traveled back from Jerusalem to Galilee. All these events had taken place before now, but Jesus hadn't really launched his public preaching ministry uh, officially and certainly not in his home district of Galilee, which was to be his base for most of his ministry. But in our last episode, we saw that this is exactly what Jesus did. He started preaching. He said that the time had come, the kingdom of God was at hand, was near, and that people needed to repent and believe the good news. He uh, moved from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum, which is a fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake, uh, which uh, forms the scene and the environment and the context for much of Jesus's ministry, many settlements all the way around the edge of the lake. And we'll see reference to many of them during Jesus's ministry. His base was there in Capernaum, and a few kilometers south uh, was the main town on the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias, which was the headquarters of the local regional ruler, Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod the Great, the king at the time of Jesus's birth. Now, Herod Antipas ruled uh, the northern districts of Israel and He's important for our story today because it's one of his staff, one of his royal officials who has a remarkable need and encounter with Jesus and experiences an incredible miracle and actually becomes a believer. We've no record that Jesus met uh, the local regional ruler Herod Antipas during his life until the very last week of his life but they lived in close proximity to each other. And this is the first occasion that one of Herod's staff or one of his officials becomes profoundly influenced by Jesus and becomes a believer. Doubtless Herod would have heard this story. The location for our story is the town of Cana, which 
is the scene of a previous visit of Jesus. So in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 2, we see that Jesus visited Cana once before, um, after his baptism. And on that occasion, he was invited to a wedding through family connections. His mother was there. He brought his disciples along, probably five or six at the time. There were five disciples who came with him from John the Baptist's encampment at Bethany, which we noticed earlier on. And so he spent time in this wedding and then something supernatural and extremely remarkable took place when they ran out of wine and he turned water into wine miraculously, which John describes as his first sign, his first miracle. So the residents of Cana, which would only be a small village, a few hundred people, would all know about Jesus because there wouldn't be a single person in that community who wasn't aware of that wedding having taken place. And this was only a very short time before the event we see described uh, in the text today. And in these small communities, as I said on that occasion, when we studied that passage, Everyone participated, many were invited, and almost everybody was watching the events um, as the bride and groom passed through the village and the families rejoiced together. And celebrations lasted a few days anyway. So it's virtually impossible for any resident of Cana not to be aware that this Jesus, who was from the nearby village of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, that this Jesus had performed a, a, an incredible miracle that nobody could explain. And that at the end of the wedding ceremony, there was lots of wine left over because of the sheer quantity of wine produced. So you just need to keep that in mind as we come back to Cana for another event. These villagers knew something already and it made them open and favourable to Jesus. Let's read the text. It's John 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official there whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal officials said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go. Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy 
was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son had got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised this, that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. It's a very remarkable event. It starts off with a rather surprising statement where Jesus is referred to as having said that a prophet has no honour in his own country and yet it appears that the people in Cana at least received him very warmly. But he goes on to say that miracles are going to be critical for people to believe and probably what Jesus has in mind in this rather surprising statement is the recent experience that's happened to him in Samaria. You see, the Samaritans believed the gospel and believed in Jesus, believed he was the Messiah, without any miracle being performed. There's no record of any miracle in that story earlier on in John chapter 4. And yet, here in Galilee, Jesus is implying that miracles are going to be necessary in order for people to believe. The Galileans were more focused on miracles and the Samaritans he'd met were just open to believe him for who he was. Now, we notice the very welcoming attitude in Cana, verse 45 that they welcomed him and the passage around there. Now, there were two reasons for this. They'd heard some of the things that he'd done in Jerusalem. Some of them had been there at the religious festival known as the Passover, which we've discussed in an earlier episode. And of course, the other reason that they would be favourable to him was that they remembered the wedding, the banquet, the water, the wine. They remembered the incident. And it's clear that the royal official had heard about Jesus. He'd heard some amazing things about Jesus and he sought him out. And he came to him and he begged him, verse 47. He was very persistent when Jesus said uh, that people wouldn't believe until they had miracles, he asked him to come to his home and to heal his son. Now, the distance between the two places was something in the region of 20 kilometres. So he was inviting Jesus to travel with him back to where his son was in Capernaum. Now, the royal official, having come from Capernaum, would perhaps have already been aware that Jesus had just moved there. He'd just established his headquarters there and started preaching there. You may have even heard him preach in the synagogue at Capernaum. But certainly he was very intensely pursuing him 
and believing that he had the power to do miracles. And he um, accepted him at his word. I love this expression in verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed when Jesus said, your son will live. So rather than travelling down to Capernaum and praying for him or laying hands on him, Jesus just spoke, said, he'll live, he'll live, he'll be okay. And the man took Jesus at his word. So faith was rising in his heart. And then he travelled back. Now, probably he actually arrived back the following day. He may have stopped over and then travelled the following day. Because when he was approaching Capernaum, uh, members of his household came to him and said that his son uh, was fine. He was fine now, no problem. And when, he, when inquiring about when he'd recovered, he discovered that it was one in the afternoon. And he remembered, well, that's the time I spoke to Jesus yesterday, one in the afternoon. And yesterday, one in the afternoon, he recovered exactly the same time. How amazing. He was amazed and he believed and he told all his family and he probably had lots of other people living in his household because he was an official. He would have had servants and he told them about the amazing power of Jesus of Nazareth who had healed his son and they all entered into a living faith. It's a, it's a remarkable story and it reminds us of a story in the other Gospels about the centurion, the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier whose servant was very ill and who approached Jesus asking him to come uh, to heal his servant. And, and Jesus said he would be well and the centurion believed as well. But these are two separate accounts and the, these are two separate people. Something similar happens in both cases, but they're not the same. And uh, in this case, this is a Jewish man, almost certainly, um, and he's an official of Herod Antipas. In the other case, it's a Roman soldier who is a part of the occupying military force. We have two different people, two different occasions, two different circumstances, but very similar outcomes. So as we think about this particular passage and uh, bring some reflections, my first reflection is to say this is uh, just the beginning of the story of miracles in Galilee. There will be literally thousands of miracles that follow and a handful of them will be recounted in some detail by one or other of the gospel writers. This is the first one that we get a full story about. It's a lovely and a wonderful story where Jesus is able to help this man very decisively, very clearly, and bring about a miracle from a distance. The, event, the miracle happens far away from this, the meeting point of Jesus and the royal official. But this John describes as a sign. And it was the second sign that Jesus performed. You remember that John only gives us seven miracles described in any detail. And they're all signs of who Jesus is and 
how we should respond to him. So miracles always point beyond themselves. They're not just about the individual's consent. The royal official and his son and his household and his wife and others would have been immensely blessed because they were very afraid that the, the boy was uh, fading fast and they felt that he was going to be overcome by a fever, which was very common in those days. They were blessed, but the sign points well beyond them. It points to who Jesus is and it points to the truth of his message, a message that we just heard about in the last episode he was beginning to preach. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the message we see in Mark 1, 14 and 15. So miracles point to something else. They're not an end in themselves. And one of the big challenges that we see in the Gospels is that many, many people wanted miracles purely for their own benefit and to relieve their own suffering, which is understandable from our point of view. But it becomes clear that not all those people believed wholeheartedly in Jesus. They took the blessing and walked away and lived lives independently of him. Now, miracles are designed to draw us to faith. They are, they are a sign, a signpost to who Jesus is and how we should live our lives. The good news about this particular story is that it appears that the royal official and his household believed. It says, so he and his whole household believed. And that would have been a considerable challenge to Herod Antipas. Because one of his officials, maybe even a senior official, has now become a believer in Jesus the Messiah. And we see signs that his household had a number of other believers in it um, as we go through the Gospels. For example, in Luke 8 verse 3, it describes in this passage some of the women who were traveling with Jesus to support the disciple group, organize their practical support. And one of them is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. So that's interesting. Joanna, the wife of a senior official of Herod Antipas, is on the road with Jesus's discipleship group. That's how strongly she believed. She had money, she had wealth, and she was using it to buy food and to provide accommodation, pay for accommodation along the road. So here's another person close to King Herod who was converted to Christianity along with this royal official that we see in John chapter 4. This is really quite interesting and this often happens to people in influence with influence and power in our society is that God begins to speak to them through people close to them who become true believers. But I want, as another reflection, just to talk a little bit about this royal official and his faith. Faith is the marvellous and wonderful ingredient of life that we're always seeking to develop and grow. And I'm trusting and praying that the teaching that we're giving here as we discuss the life of Jesus and study the Gospels will increase your faith. And one way of doing that is reflecting on the people who respond very positively to Jesus. And this royal official 
is a good example. And so what we see in him is that he was earnest. He was serious. So he came to Jesus and he begged him to help. Now, it's interesting to reflect that he was a senior government official and Jesus was just some new travelling preacher who hadn't really got established yet. And yet this person with a high standing in society comes and he humbles himself and he asks Jesus sincerely and intensely to intervene in his life. Now, faith, living faith, has that kind of intensity. When we face a need within our lives, as we come with earnestness to Jesus in prayer, he's very inclined towards us. He sees our heart, he sees the seriousness of our prayers and our petitions and he wants to answer them. So earnestness is very important. And not only earnestness, but persistence. Because in, in verse 48, after he's been begging and saying that his son was close to death, Jesus said in a way that uh, could, could be seen as a little bit rude, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. So he presses in. He doesn't want to be put off by that statement. He indicates his persistence. When obstacles come in the way, um, the one with faith will persist and pray and trust. And the other thing is that he exercised a steady faith in Jesus before he saw the result of Jesus's promise. Jesus said that your son will live, but it wasn't until the next day that he was able to verify that um, because it wasn't until the next day that he got back in the vicinity of his home and met some of his household who told him the wonderful news that the boy had been healed at the time that Jesus had spoken to the man 20 kilometers away. So we need to exercise a steady faith in Jesus and a trust in him before we see the answers to our prayers or if we see a slightly different answer that we didn't expect and we have to trust him as we press ahead in life. Steady faith in Jesus's words is a very key part of Christian discipleship. And this man, in this short time frame, showed that type of faith. He went away, took Jesus at his word. So as he was traveling back, either on foot or on horseback or whatever, he was able to know for certain that his prayer had been answered. He just trusted Jesus. And Jesus is asking us as individuals to trust him with the complexities and the pains and the suffering and the, the difficulties of our lives. And there will be many. There'll be many in your life. And I want to encourage you to trust him actively and to take inspiration from this story in your journey of faith. The alternative is 
that some people just want to receive miracles and blessings from God. If there is a God, they'll bring their needs to him and they're hoping that they can get their problem solved and then they just move on in their life. We see this happening time and again in the gospel narratives. It's impossible to count or even imagine the number of people who flock to Jesus to get healed. We hear of crowds traveling in from north, south, east and west, traveling up to 50, 100 kilometers, some of them disabled or carrying people along in order to be healed, in order to receive that blessing. But those same numbers don't become disciples of Jesus. And the one thing we learn from this particular passage is that this man became a true believer. We can't track the rest of his life because he doesn't appear again in the gospel narratives, but we can only assume that he gave a positive witness about Jesus to King Herod Antipas, uh, along with Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and perhaps others in his household, and told the king about Jesus. And Herod Antipas became very interested in Jesus. And so when he had a chance to meet him uh, and to interview him in the last week of his life, he was very interested to get Jesus to perform a miracle for him because he'd heard about all the miracles he performed for other people. So this is a, a wonderful story, not often emphasised um, in the study of the Gospels, sometimes confused with the story of the centurion and his servant. This is a different episode, a different story, a different person and a different context, but with a similar outcome. And we see faith arising from an encounter with Jesus where someone pleads with Jesus to intervene in an area of need and trust Jesus when Jesus promises to do it for them, even before they saw the result. They trusted in him. We need faith like that. Faith that believes in Jesus and trusts in God before we even see the full results of our faith. And I want to encourage you to develop such faith and to use these studies to strengthen our faith. I'm going to conclude with just a lovely definition of faith from Hebrews chapter 11 which summarises um, in a more direct form the things that I'm drawing out of this particular story. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's exactly what the royal official had. He had confidence in what he hoped for and assurance about he, what, what he did not yet see, when Jesus said that his son would live. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11, and with this I conclude, and without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We need two things to have faith. We need the belief, but we also need the seeking after him. He rewards those 
who earnestly seek him. He rewarded the royal official and he will reward you as you seek him with the same attitude of faith for the issues of your life. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.